If you guys would please turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Let me pray for us. Lord, I, I walk into this study and I just realize how this book has impacted me in so many lives. And Lord, would you speak through me and help me just to be able to communicate the introduction to Romans, which is so powerful. And Lord, help those who are here open their minds and their hearts to understand it. And help it to change our minds, transform our minds, so we can walk worthy of your call. And so the Holy Spirit just come upon us tonight, teach us about Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. For some of you, you may be new to our church, um, and so on Wednesdays, Pastor Eric um, and I, I teach it only once a month on the third Wednesday of every month, and Pastor Eric teaches all the other Wednesdays. And Wednesdays are a little different than the weekends because on Wednesdays, we go through just from Genesis to Revelation, just go straight through, and now we just concluded with the book of Acts, and we're getting into Romans. And so if you want a lot of background on Romans, you definitely want to go back and listen to the book of Acts because it was the history of the church and how it was planted. And Romans fits within the context of the book of Acts. So as we do go through this, we just kind of go through it line by line, just systematically, and just try to find Jesus in everything that we, we read. And we try to apply it to our lives. And so as we open up the book of Romans, I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to read down to verse 7. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are, call, also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's as far as we're going to get tonight on um, our scripture reading. And that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of the remaining is just the introduction. There's a ton in the introduction. And what I get from this introduction right out of the gate. So I was, I've been reading this over and over and over and over. And I'm trying to figure out you know, how to see this the way Paul sees this and what he was trying to communicate to the church in Rome. And I, what I came up with was there's two categories in the introduction from one through seven. The first category is man, whether it's Paul or the church, and it could be implied us, the human beings. Um, that's one category. And the other category is Jesus 
God and spirit. Those are our two categories in this in these seven verses, in these seven verses. And when I started underlining and circling, so I, I, for category one, when it refers to Paul or people, I underlined it. And it, whether it's a noun or a pronoun or an adjective that explains that person, I underlined it. And when it had to do with God, whether it's an adjective or a pronoun or just straight up it says Jesus or God or spirit, I circled it. And what I found was I underlined seven things in category one, about people, Paul, the church, or us. So seven times were mentioned. Sixteen times I circled something that had to do with God. Sixteen. So when we approach the book of Romans, what do you think we're going to read? What do you think it's about? It's not about, we're not the main subject. That's what, that's what it's about <laughs> We are part of it. We are part of this plan, but we're not the main subject. It's about Jesus. It's about God, and it's about the Spirit. So right out of the gate, in the introduction, we get the Holy Spirit. We get God, the Father, and the Son. We get the Trinity. And how do we play a part in that? And the rest of the book of Romans is going to unfold this, this meaning, all the way through the book of Romans. And so when, when I read this, and I'm also looking at, this church in Rome, which Paul has never been to, and we know that he wrote it on his third missionary journey, probably towards the tail end, so we're looking at A.D. 56 through 58 time frame, like 25 years after Jesus died and rose again. He's writing this, and Paul was always trying to get to Rome, wasn't he? In the book of Acts, it seemed like he was always trying to get to Rome because that's the center of the, kind of the universe there at the time, it was the capital. All roads lead to Rome, meaning all roads lead out of Rome. And if you can get the gospel into Rome, then it's just going to just permeate and just explode, and it goes out into the world. So the whole world was coming to Rome, and then the roads were leading out into the world. So Paul is going to write this letter to this Roman church, which, but Paul has never been at this point. He hasn't been to this church. It's a church that suffered a lot of persecution. Just years prior to that, Claudius, the emperor, kicked out all the Jews. So that's when we, inter that's when we interact with Priscilla and Aquila. When Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila, it says they were Jews that were kicked out by Claudius. So they were Christian Jews. They were, they were convert, converts to Christianity, Jews. And then by this time, he's writing it. We see it in the very end of Romans. He says, hey, please tell Priscilla and Aquila I said hello. So the band must have been lifted, and they got him back in. But there's a lot of persecution that was happening. We also get out of Acts chapter 16, when Paul goes to Philippi, and he is proclaiming the gospel on the streets, and that little demonic woman keeps on following him for multiple days, and he just gets so frustrated, and he casts out the demon out of her. And it makes her, her masters, these people who are making all this money from her, it makes them so mad. And then, they're like, well, this guy just took our source of money, but how, so how can we penalize him? Because this is not actually against the law. Well, it's a Roman colony. Philippi is a Roman colony. So he takes, these people take Paul to the magistrates, the Roman officials, and says, this man right here is teaching us things that's not lawful. He's teaching them something that hasn't been registered with the Roman government. So Christianity hasn't been registered with the Roman government. Never during Paul's time. So it's against the law to preach it. 
So that's what they try to convict him with. And it made the Roman magistrates so mad. You can read it in Acts chapter 16. They tore their clothes and they beat Paul with poles and Silas and threw him in prison into the inner cell. That's what kind of violation, that's what kind of um, context that we're talking about here. So when he's sending this letter to Rome, I mean, the church is probably underground at the time. I think it's important to understand this context because he's just not going to send this letter and they're just going to start reading it on the street corners. It doesn't work that way in Paul's time. When I, when I notice, when I read through this, that he is already working with a framework. There's a foundation and a frame already made. And for some of us here, we may not have that understanding of this framework. Because a lot of the people he's writing to were Jews and proselytes. So Gentiles who converted to Judaism, they have an understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. They already do. Some of us may not have that privilege of having a good understanding of the Old Testament. So when we were reading through this, you can just kind of tell he already kind of assumes or possibly assumes that they may know that because he talks about the seed of David. Well, that's Old Testament. Um, he just keeps on talking about the resurrection from the dead, which comes from the Old Testament. Um, the faith among all the nations, which is a theme throughout the Old Testament. So Paul is working with already an in-place structure or framework. So if you can picture like a house that has a frame, but there's no walls or anything, it has a foundation and a frame, that's kind of what he's already working with. But since we not, may not have that, I have to get you and understand that framework before we can start putting up the walls. That's what Paul is going to do in Romans. He's going to start putting up these walls to make this thing a little bit more understandable. So, and I've done this before. Some of you have already seen me do this before. But I think it's paramount that we understand the vision, the framework that Paul already understands and he's already communicating here and I want us to spend a little bit of time so we can fully grasp the letter to the Romans. And you actually have to go back into the Old Testament because Paul is going to mention the Old Testament, guess how many times in the book of Romans? 57 times. 57. So if we do not go into the Old Testament, a lot of stuff is going to go over our heads. So I want to try to get you to understand first and foremost this understanding, this vision that Paul sees in the Old Testament, okay? Some of it is Christianity 101, but there's some of us in here that are new to this, and so I'm going to kind of go through this a little slowly, but clearly. We see in the book of Genesis, the very first book, everything was good. There was no bad news in the first two chapters of Genesis. God had created everything, and his last and most beautiful creation was mankind. And he says he's walking with man in the coolness of the day. That's why he created us. He wants to have a relationship with us. To have a relationship, you have to have the option to choose or not choose. And so he put that darn tree right in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there was another tree, the, the tree of the knowledge of life. There's two right there. And he says of this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, do not touch it, because if you touch, if you eat of the fruit, you're going to die. You will die. So they have reign of the entire garden. It was beautiful. They were walking with the Father in the coolness of the day, and then Satan's there. 
And next thing you know, he starts tempting them. The one thing they couldn't have, he starts saying, you can have it, and you can be like God, you can know like God, and everything else. And Adam and Eve took of that fruit and ate of it, and it sent a shockwave of destruction all throughout the, of the Bible. A shockwave of destruction, creation, and everything. Us, the ground, everything was dying now because of that one choice. Was it God's doing? No, it was man's doing. And we are reaping the benefits, or lack of benefits, I should say, of that one still to this day. And it's amazing to me that in chapter 3, verse 15, the first prophecy of the Bible, it says that he's speaking to Satan. God is speaking to Satan. And you guys can turn there. Go ahead and turn there. Genesis 3.15. So he's speaking to Satan, and he's going to give the curse. Man has eaten the fruit, and so there's a curse for it. And it says, because you have done this, Satan, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. First prophecy of the Bible, and it says, Satan, you're going to have a little stake here. When the seed of the woman, we know that to be Jesus. When that seed comes from the woman, Mary, you will temporarily take him out. You will strike his heel, a temporary stop. But he's going to come back and crush your head, a fatal blow. Okay? So man messes it all up, and God's like, I want to redeem what was lost in the garden. So I'm going to send my seed through the woman to redeem what was lost in the garden. So we mess it all up, and God still says, I want you. I want to pursue you. And so we get in verse three, or chapter 3, verse 24. So he drove out the man out of the garden. He drove mankind out, Adam and Eve. And he placed the cherubim at the east of the garden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. If we have access to the tree of life, we never die. And it's guarded because we couldn't get in there. We can't get in there because of the sin of Adam and Eve. But we do know something that God has a plan and it comes in the form of a seed through a woman, a child. And that seed is going to redeem what was lost in the garden. Okay? This is extremely important that we understand this, to understand the book of Romans. Paul will reference Adam and Eve. He will reference Adam in the book of Romans. So everybody keep their finger in this spot right here, okay? And you're going to flip all the way back into the New Testament, the very last chapter of the New Testament. Chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 14. Chapter 22, Revelation 14. So, of you, if you're new to the scriptures, Genesis is the first book, Revelation is the last, and Revelation hasn't happened yet. It's a prophecy for future. And he says this, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. So God's plan 
is to let us back into the tree of life. And how do we do that? We obey the commandments. They obey the commands to who? If I go right above it, we obey the commandments of the person speaking, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, and the end. That's Jesus Christ. So I can, you can do this if you want, but those are your bookends to the Bible. That's your overarching theme. God is going to restore what was lost in the garden. It comes through the seed of a woman, Jesus, and it's going to redeem you. Redemption. We sang it tonight on Redemption's Hill. Your blood was spilled. He's redeeming us on that hill by going to the cross. So that's how you pretty much understand the Bible. There was great news right out of the gate. God was walking with us in the coolness of the day. They take and eat of that fruit, and bam, we got bad news. That everybody is in sin, every single one of us, bad news. And then he says in Romans chapter 1, the good news of the gospel of God. It's the gospel of God, meaning the good news of God. So now there's good news. What's that good news? That seed is going to redeem you and me because of the situation that we're in, the predicament we're in. The bad news is I'm a sinner. The good news is somebody can come and pay the price for that. So I have these bookends here to understand the scripture. And right through it, you can, just, you can burn a laser right through the whole entire book of the Bible. And there's one theme, major theme, throughout the entire book of the Bible. And it's that seed. And you can just watch it. All the way through the Bible, there's a seed. And I've heard the book before. I never read it. The scarlet thread that runs straight through the scriptures from the Old Testament all the way to the New to the very last pages of of Revelation. And that seed, Jesus Christ, shoots straight through God's redeeming. Okay? There's one more set of bookends that I want to talk about. As time goes, Genesis rolls in. God, in chapter 6 through 9, he's just like, I can't believe some of this creation I created. I'm sorry for it, and I'm going to kill it, except one person, Noah and his family. By faith, he builds that ark. That ark represents Jesus, by the way. You get on God's provision by faith. You build it. You get on it. You're going to survive. He does that. He has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? And they're the only family that survives on the earth after the flood, 6 to 9. And then in chapter 10, those three sons of Noah have children. And it comes to 70. So we call it the table of nations. Seventy nations are produced out of those three. Okay? They all speak one language. And they all start getting arrogant and proud. He told them, you need to spread out on the earth. You need to all spread out. And what they do, they didn't spread out. They all stayed together speaking the same language. They wanted to make a name known for themselves. So they built the Tower of Babel. And then God comes down, he's like, I'm, <sighs> these human beings, <laughs> and confuses their language, and bam, all those 70 nations now have different languages, and they make them spread out, right? And they go out. That's in chapter 11. So 10, the table of nations, 11, he confuses their language, and they all spread out. Now we have people all around the earth spread out, speaking different languages, And then he picks one man, Abraham, chapter 12 of Genesis. And look, everybody turn to chapter 12. He tells Abram, or Abraham, chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord has said to Abraham, from your family and from your father's house, or get out of the country from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you, I will make you a great nation. 
among all the nations. I'm going to make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curses you. And in you, all the families, all the nations, that means nations, families, shall be blessed. So this is the first time God has chosen mankind, Abram. He's choosing Abraham. You are going to be on mission, and you're going to go, and you're going to be a blessing to all these nations. And now, it's like, why could you just not, why did you confuse their language? <laughs> he confuses all the languages, and he tells that one man, you're going to be a blessing to these nations. And through your seed, through your family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the seed that goes through them, that's going to be the line where the seed comes from, from Genesis 3.15. It shoots all the way through. That's why in Matthew and in Luke, the genealogy is always tracing it back. It's paramount that we understand that. And so all throughout the Old Testament, you're going to see that this one chosen nation, the Jewish nation, the children of Israel's job is to take all the oracles of God, this blessings, and Worship him and then tell everybody about it. They don't do a very good job with it, but that's the plan. And so when Paul is introducing all this, he has this in mind, this vision, this framework is already in mind. Now keep your finger on that spot right here. Go to Revelation chapter 5. Again, this is John's caught up in a vision and the Lord is showing him what's going to happen in the end times. Revelation 5, verse 9. If you want to know how it's all going to end, right here, okay? And they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll, which they're talking about Jesus. They're singing to Jesus. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. You redeemed us. That's his point. That's his mission is to redeem what was lost in the garden. He's redeeming us by his blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So at the end of time, every tribe, tongue, nation is going to hear the gospel. And it's going to be beautiful. We're all going to sit there and worship from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, the glory of God, and that's his plan. And it all happens through Jesus Christ. That's your other bookend. So if you're to hold that up, it's like, well, what's really God? What is he? What's he doing? What's his plan? What's his mission? And that's how you understand the scriptures. He's trying to redeem what was lost in the garden, and he wants to use us, the people, to go out into the nations to worship and proclaim his name, make his name known, make his name famous. Right there. That's Paul. That's the framework that Paul is working with. That's his hermeneutic. That's his worldview. And so when we're going to go through Romans, you're like, okay, that's the nations, man. Like, he's going to go to the nations. He's so excited. He's like, I can't wait. I just got to write this letter, 16 chapters worth. And he's like, what can I tell these people to really get them to understand this gospel, this good news? 
how do I get them to understand how to live within this construct of the scriptures? And it's like Paul's understanding, and this is my object lesson for tonight. It's not my helmet. It's like, okay, if I'm going to say anything to these people, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of boil this thing down in the, in the most concise way I possibly can. It's 39 books in the Old Testament, and he's also going to be using four books in the New, the Gospels. And he says, out of those, I'm going to put them in this thing, right? This is all to get you to kind of picture it. And there's a ton of narrative and everything else, and it's going to have to come out. It's just all going to have to spell out of here because we're looking for the main theme, the main, the main message. And that's what he's trying to communicate in the book of Romans. And he is trying to get all this stuff in the Old Testament, the stories and everything, and he just wants to leave the main message from all the stories, from Genesis to the book of John. Right? And by the time he looks through it and he gets the 57 verses in the Old Testament to try to get it to explain it, he's going to come out... And if you were to open that up, his explanation of all those stories and everything else and trying to find the main message, you would open it up and it's the book of Romans. That's the point of the book of Romans. It's like a systematic theology of God. And so we're going to try, he's going to try to get them to understand the most important message of who we are in God. We have a problem. We have a sin problem. But who is God? What's his plan? How's he going to redeem us? And then, in light of all this information, how do we live? How do we live in light of all this information? That's the message of Romans. That's what he's trying to get the Roman church to understand. And that's what we're trying to understand as well. And so, when I open up the book of Romans, I see right out of the gate, this is what he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about the seed of David. He's going to talk about all these things. It's all Old Testament stuff. So, everybody turn back into Romans chapter 1. Romans is... The challenging part of teaching Romans is like, what do you not talk about? Especially in the introduction. What do you not talk about? Because there's so much to talk about. And he says, Paul, he wants the Roman church to know exactly who's writing to him and how to receive him. He says, he opens up, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. A bondservant is a slave in those days, and it was very common. It's just part of the, the economy. If you wanted to work for someone, you would go and say, will you own me and pay for me to live? And after seven years, they can release you. And if you were a really good master, that person would come to them and say, can you just take me for the rest of my life? You're such a good master. I want to be your bond servant. And that master would say, okay, then I'm going to pierce your ear. I'm going to put an earring in your ear so when people see you, they know that you belong to me. You're bonded to me. So if you were in those days and you see somebody with like an earring, you're like, oh, you must have a really good master. Paul is saying, I have a great master, and it's Jesus Christ. And he, he, he had like the proverbial earring. I don't think he had one. I don't know. Um, but if my kids come to me one day, my boys, and say, can I have an earring? I'm going to explain to them. It's like, well, you're going to, if you want an earring, I'll pierce it. And then you have to tell everybody that your dad is an awesome master. (laughs) You ain't going to have one. (laughs) 
That's what they would do. They would, they would pierce the ear, and you look at them, you must have a really good master. And Paul is telling the Roman church, I have a wonderful master, and I'm under obligation from him to come to you with this letter. I'm under an obligation. I'm doing this because I belong to him, and he's telling me to do it. So when they receive this, and I'm like, I'm a bondservant of this guy. It's like, oh, you're supposed to do what your master tells you. And he says, I'm called to be an apostle, which is a missionary, a person who's sent out to establish a work. So he's a bondservant, and God has called him to be a missionary, to start new work. This is all his identity. Separated to the gospel of God, the good news, and that good news is what I just told you. Because of the bad news back in Genesis, when they ate of that tree, he's like, no, I'm going to redeem what was lost by sending my son, the seed. That's the good news. That's the gospel to redeem us. Which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So all of the Old Testament is giving off a shadow of good things to come, Hebrews 10.1 tells us. It's giving off the shadow. You can't fully see it. You can't understand it. But it's all the symbolism like the ark and the Passover lamb and all these sacrifices and everything. It's producing a shadow. And it's all pointing to something that's going to come. And that's Jesus. That's the fulfillment of the seed. That's Jesus. And when Jesus comes, like the shadow is gone and here he is. It's just sitting there. That's Jesus. In all the Old Testament, the mission of the Old Testament was to to tell us so much about that shadow. So when it does come, we would recognize it. It was concerning his son, Jesus Christ. So the whole Old Testament was concerning Jesus. Our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. So if you were to take that genealogy and you're looking right out of Adam, and it's going to keep on going through, to, through Seth, through Shem, all these people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it just continues to go. You're going to run in Ruth. All these people. It's just going, and bam, it's going to hit David. And it had to go through David because that was the promise that God had made, that your seed is going to sit on this throne. It's what he told David. So all the Jews were looking. It has to go through David. It has to go through David. And declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Multiple times in the Old Testament says the servant will be slain, whether it's the Passover lamb, that's the whole point of the Passover lamb, the blood of the innocent lamb, if you put it on your doorpost during the Passover story in Exodus chapter 12, God will pass over you if you have the blood of the innocent lamb on your doors, your door jams. And that was Jesus. He was the Passover lamb. So his blood, if it's on us, so to speak, day of judgment, God's judgment's going to pass over us. So many pictures in the Old Testament of how it's going to be a suffering servant that Satan's seed will punish him temporarily, but he will be punished, and we see that over and over in the Old Testament. So when Jesus does come, we should, we should know he's going to be punished, but he's going to rise again and the Spirit of God will rise him from the dead. Through him, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among how many nations? All nations. It's his plan. 
from the prophets, from the beginning. It's his plan. For his name. So we're doing it for Jesus' name. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be the saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. All this in the introduction. A lot to understand. And it main theme is Jesus Christ is the answer. The main theme is God has a plan from beginning to end. Jesus is the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. And Paul in the book of Romans is going to take it all the way back from the beginning and he's just going to he's going to show the Roman church that time systematically, beautifully laid out how this all fits together within God's grand scheme of redeeming what was lost in the garden. And based upon that information, it should be a change in behavior. So when we get into chapter 12, it's like, okay, you need to change. This is the reason. I've just told you for 11 chapters why you need to change. So in chapter 12, you are to change. And you're to live in community. You are to know how to live within community. And you know what to do with the time on this earth until I redeem you and I come back. Romans, as you're going to go through it, um, I just want you to keep in mind. And a lot of you know the history. Romans is one of those books, it's probably above any other book in the Bible that's caused more change within the church, more reformations, and it's led people to salvation more than probably any other book. So when I read it, and especially when I teach it, I'm coming with a little bit of fear and trepidation, to be honest with you. And I'm not saying it's more inspired than any other book. I'm not saying that. But because of the impact it's had on society all the way from the beginning since it's been written, we can go back. We see Augustine. Our, the fa- like one of our early church fathers was living this licentious lifestyle. He was a drunk, but he was wealthy and he was well-educated. And somehow he stumbles upon Romans chapter 13. We're not supposed to live in this drunken state. And he's like, what is this book? And he goes back, chapter 1, and he just reads straight through it and he gets saved. And he's one of the most, the largest figures in church history that we have. And you go and you get to the Reformation time with Martin Luther He's a Catholic monk, and he's just trying to be holy by works and works, and the, the, the church is teaching. It's by works, by giving, all these things, and he's just so frustrated. He throws his Bible, and then it opens up, and bam, Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. That one little Old Testament prophecy out of Habakkuk reformed the entire church. It was like God took that and this completely body slammed Martin Luther to pin him down to understand his heart. And it, that sent a shock wave all, in all directions from Germany back in the 1500s. And it's the Reformation. The, probably the reason why we're here today is because of that time. And it came from the book of Romans. And you just keep going and you get Wesley, who is the, the father of the, of the Methodist movement. He was impacted by it. Keep rolling Karl Barth, the most amazing theologian of the 20th century. He was impacted by it. And Chuck Smith, 
the founder of Calvary Chapel, when he was a four-square preacher, he was preaching in the four-square church, and he was just going through the book of Romans, he's like, oh, to be righteous, you have to live by faith. And it finally sunk into him, and God used him to start this Jesus movement, which was the largest movement, Christian movement, in the 20th century, and history will record that. And Calvary Chapel spawned out of all this, and it is probably the fastest growing, the largest growing church since then, all throughout the world. And there's not even this big overarching structure. It's a Holy Spirit movement because we're based on the Word of God. And so throughout over 16, 1,800 churches, Calvary Chapels have been spawned off, plus other affiliates, because one man was impacted through the book of Romans. And so you may, as you go through it, I ask you to anticipate God to confront you. I want to be confronted again. Many people have been confronted. Pastor Eric has been confronted by the book of Romans. God literally spoke to him through the book of Romans and changed his direction course. And many of you have also read through the book of Romans. So I'm asking you to prepare your minds and your hearts as we go through it in the weeks coming that just wait on the Lord and see how even Paul has structured this so it can impact your heart and you can understand God's plan. It's really based upon God's plan all through Jesus and what he wants to do, and that's to reach the nations. And so this is Paul's plan. I'm going to reach the nations, and I'm going to go to Rome, and I'm going to write this most succinct, systematic book that I possibly can, and we are benefactors of it today. So a lot of you may be like, what is Kent talking about? Because, I mean, I have to set this book up to start it, you know? And here's where it boils down to, and Paul says it in 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. And our wages of sin in 6.23 is death, but we have this free gift of eternal life through God. So you're... If you don't have Christ, you're working for someone. You're a slave of someone. Well, you might be a slave of Jesus or you're not, but you're going to be a slave of someone. You can't serve two masters. We're all sinful, every single one of us, me, you, everyone. There's not a person on this planet that's not. And so we understand because of the garden, we are, there's, there was bad news, but now there's good news. God wants to redeem you, and the way to do that is through Christ. And you can just read it in this introduction. The plan was through Christ always to cover your sin. And if you don't accept him as your master, your Lord of your life, and he's a good one, he's the best, to cover your sins, to pay, your, to pay the penalty for you, then you're in another, you're in a predicament, you're in bad news. And when you get to the father and he's going to say, why did you not accept my son? You're like, I didn't want to serve him. I didn't want to live for him. And he tells us there, the wages of sin is death. And so death is going to await you. But if you accept Christ, then you have the free gift of eternal life. And that's through the son of Jesus. And so tonight, if that's you and you're like, I've never accepted Christ. I've never understood it until now. I'm asking you to respond to God, not to me or anyone else. You're responding to God, and you're making Jesus your Lord, your master, and you become his, his bondservant. You will stick to him, and he's the best. Amen. If you need prayer for anything, 
I ask that you'll also come down and you pray with us as pastors and leaders on staff here. Um, come down and, and we, can, we can pray over you and help you through whatever you're going through. But I just pray that you understand the structure of this book and I pray that you're anticipating to be impacted by your heavenly father through Jesus as we do definitely go through this book. And I pray if you came in here and you don't know Jesus and if you're struggling with anything, he can help you overcome it, but you have to come to him, not to a person, but to him. And so, Lord, I pray for every single person in here tonight. I pray that as you have revealed to us the plan is through your son, Jesus, the seed, the seed from David in the Old Testament, how the prophets all talked about him. And when he came, it's like the king was here. Jesus is the king. And to repent and to believe in the gospel, the good news that God has come to redeem what was lost in that garden, and that's Jesus. Jesus is doing, not our doing. So we can't earn our salvation only by faith that we can believe that in Jesus that he covers our sins. And the blood of that spotless lamb of Jesus will cover us and we can walk holy. But because of that, help us to walk worthy of the calling of the gospel. Help us to walk worthy of Jesus 